Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 8.09 right now. Time now to welcome back Professor David Schultz, uh, who has been in China for uh, more than two weeks teaching and talking to folks at the U.S. Embassy there in Beijing. Welcome back. We've missed you. Thank you very much. I should say um, I'm thrilled to be back, and um, it was an interesting trip when I was over there. All right, and you were just telling me sort of in the break, because we want so much to talk about, you know, both in terms of, you know, the situation in Minneapolis with this officer-involved shooting, uh, certainly the state-level Governor Mark Dayton loses a major round in court, and obviously so much going on in terms of the Russia probe and uh, – the president, uh, his inability to get the health care bill passed, it goes on and on. But right. sort of your, your thoughts about teaching in Beijing, what, what, what stood out, and, and were they following some of the events in, in the U.S.? Well, yes, yes. I'm following it to the extent that they can because one of the things that's important to understand about China is that the Chinese government has erected an enormous firewall that makes it difficult to access a lot of the Western media. And so I think even despite that, they're, they're following very, very closely and the class that I was teaching was on public policy and public administration in America. I had 65 students, and they were very, very interested um, in American politics and very, very knowledgeable. And in fact, one of the topics I talked all about was health care reform in Obamacare. And because China also has, at best, a, a failing health care system, um, at worst, a almost non-existent one. They really? Were, they were, yeah, they were very interested in that. But the, at the embassy talk, I gave, I gave a talk this past Monday at the U.S. Embassy. Um, two, there were 198, 200 um, Chinese um, citizens showed up. Um, I sort of did my spiel for about 45 minutes, again, talking about, some broad themes about American politics, but then for 90 minutes afterwards, they were asking a ton of questions about Donald Trump, um, about health care, uh, uh, just about absolutely anything. And so I walked away with this impression that in China, they were very, very closely following what the United States was doing. And of course, they, they are very interested in terms of you know, what the United States is doing in Asia, obviously with North Korea, with Japan, um, trade with China. So I thought that in general, people were exceedingly knowledgeable and, and were very curious about, about Donald Trump as a president and what he um, hasn't done in what he may or may not do as president of the United States in the remainder of his term. And how about, because I know the president has stated publicly and has tried to privately put pressure on China, uh, which has this, this enormous um, you know, trade relationship with North Korea, uh, you know, trying to get China to, to sort of cut back on that. There's been a lot of speculation that China won't do that. Were they interested in that? Yes, they were. Part of the conversation I had at one point is where I was talking to a few different people and saying that, well, clearly the United States is trying to pressure China to put pressure on North Korea. And most of them laughed when I talked about that in a sense that they actually feel like China doesn't have that much leverage and influence on North Korea. Yes, they're the biggest trading partner, but still North Korea is, is such an isolated country that 
that China really doesn't have much influence either. And in fact, I think the Chinese government is quite frustrated in terms of, 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 of North Korea's missile tests and so forth. So it really became clear on, on scores that Trump has limited sort of, let's say, rapport or limited leverage with China because of the way he attacks China you know, in terms of trade. And in turn, um, China has limited leverage over North Korea, which overall means we can probably not count on North Korea, even under the best of uh, China, even under the best of circumstances, in terms of being able to do anything in terms of North Korea. So it became an interesting discussion in terms of international politics. But the other part that I was trying to describe is how, in the United States, you know, one of the things that's distinctive about our government is that presidents are not above the law. That presidents at the end of the day, have to follow the Constitution, have to respect the Bill of Rights. And partly I was making that point to sort of distinguish the United States from, from China, where, where concepts such as rule of law and respect for human rights are, are not always at the top of the list in terms of what the Chinese government does. All right. Well, a lot to talk about tonight. Um, in the past week, it has been a tumultuous week in the city of Minneapolis with a Minneapolis police officer shooting and killing an Australian woman who had called 911 fearing that there was a sexual assault going on in the alley behind her house. Um, this story really has gotten international uh-huh. attention. Did it even make it to China? It did make it to China. Wow. I'm, I, 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 not only did I see it in terms of you know the news services that I received, but but I know the the China Daily, which is the major newspaper in China, um, they they covered it. Um, certainly not as big as in the United States. And I was watching what's called the China Global Television Network, which is sort of their international um, state media. And that was a story that was also being covered on uh, on that station in terms of what was happening. So so it is it it is made at what. 9,000 miles away. Right. Um, and in terms of the situation, um, the, the police chief who had been away finally came back on Thursday, uh, forced to resign. Betsy Hodges, uh, the mayor, being shouted down at a news conference that was chaotic last night. Uh, what do you see as the political implications here? Well, I th- already – go back to the Minneapolis you know, DFL convention a couple weeks ago where I think – about 75% of the delegates didn't support Betsy Hodges, and she's the incumbent. Now, um, and I think that was significant in and of itself, that, that the mayor be- received literally only one out of four of the delegates' support. Now, granted that the delegates may not be representative of, of the entire um, voting bloc in the city of Minneapolis, but nonetheless, back then it suggested to me that Hodges was vulnerable, and even even before that, I knew it. I think now she's even more vulnerable at this point, in the sense that that we have yet another instance of of a police shooting. Um, she looks like she's not in control. Um, yes, she did ask Harto to resign um, and has replaced her, but her press conference being sort of overrun yesterday, um, I think she's. I think politically, she's in a very damaged, you know, very damaged situation. And I don't know how she really comes out of this looking good at all. In fact, I don't see her coming out of it looking good at all. Um, it looks like yet another situation where the Minneapolis Police Department is beyond her control. She can't really you know, con- um, prevent some of the extreme problems that seem to be occurring there. And I think that becomes the theme. Becomes the theme to use against her is, is lack of leadership in, as a mayor. Right. And it's obviously, you know, we're going into the election. Obviously, the Super Bowl is coming. It just seems like an awful lot of things are converging. 
Um, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, I would like to ask you quickly about, uh, as you predicted, um, the Ramsey County Chief Judge did rule against Governor Mark Dayton. Uh, the governor's appealing to the Supreme Court. I've got to guess what you're going to say about that. But also want to get your take on, on really these extraordinary events that continue to unfold involving the, the president, uh, President Trump and this Russia investigation that President Trump, you know, tweeting today saying that his power to pardon is absolute. I'm sure you've got a lot to say about that. So keep it here. More with David Schultz after this. It's 819 in the Twin Cities. Welcoming back Professor David Schultz, who has been in China uh, for more than a couple of weeks. Uh, all right. Many things have happened since you've been away. Uh, but what happens, I go, I go away and, and all, and all hell breaks loose. Well, but it's like all hell's been breaking loose every week anyway. That's so right, it's just true. compounding it. But one of the things that you told me, uh, that, that would happen. And as usual, your prediction was absolutely right. Uh, you said that the governor's line item veto of all the legislative salaries, all the money for the legislators, that that was not going to hold up, that the Ramsey County chief judge was going to rule against the governor on that. Well, he did that this week. It looks like there's going to be an appeal. Your thoughts? Okay, no, again, no surprise. I think at the oral arguments, you know, one of the things that struck me, and I, and I would say this to my students you know, in constitutional law, when the argument is that the governor has unlimited authority um, or unlimited discretion to use his line-item veto any way he wants, that's never a winning argument. And what I mean by that Generally, this is going to connect to Trump in a little while, too. You cannot argue and say that decisions that you make are, are unreviewable, they are unlimited, you have unlimited discretion. That is almost always a losing argument. And that was the governor's argument here, is that he had unlimited discretion to use his line-item veto the way he wanted it. The court disagreed and said, no, that that line-item veto has to be read within a context of separation of powers, of which he cannot use it, especially in this case, for a bad motive. The bad motive was to retaliate against the legislature because it failed to do certain things that he wanted to do. And I think that's important because the the, the governor, um, I think, really hurt himself, A, by making that argument, and B, the memo that he wrote to the legislature was actually used against him because during oral arguments the judge said, at one point asked, well, could the governor use the line item veto to reduce the amount of spending for the legislature if he thought that they were spending too much? And I think think that, that would be a good argument to say, yes, you could reduce it. But the judge also hinted in saying that if he did it for bad motive, um, then that would not be right. proper. And that's exactly where the memo came in, improper motive, which is for the purposes of retaliating. So, so the governor lost again. I didn't see any surprise in that whatsoever. Now the question becomes what's going to happen as it gets appealed up, because it'll go to the Court of Appeals. Most definitely it might skip them and go to the Supreme Court. Um, how does that play out at this point, and does that get the governor to, to – um, to shift his position, because I would be incredibly surprised if the Minnesota Supreme Court uh, um, rules in his favor, even though a majority of the appointees are by Dayton. I just, I just don't see the, the law at all being on Dayton's side. All right, and and you know, you and I were both at that hearing, and it, it just 
was pretty obvious who was winning. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it wasn't it wasn't Governor Dayton's side. Yeah, I felt I felt bad for Sam Hansen. Sam Hansen was his attorney, former Minnesota Supreme Court judge, and I actually know um, um, you know Judge or, well, Sam Hansen very well. Um, and I just felt like he did not have a lot to argue argue with. And again, I come back to this point here is that when I teach con law in law school, I usually say to my students that. In a constitutional democracy like ours, nobody gets to make the argument and say, my decisions are unreviewable and I can do whatever I want whenever I want. That's never a good argument and it almost always loses. In fact, I'd say it always does lose. All right. Well, listen, let's shift gears uh, right now to um, the continuing saga of President Trump and Russia. Uh, today, uh, Congress uh, agreed to sanctions on Russia, uh, you know, which is basically defying the White House because the president said he didn't want them. Your thoughts on that? Well, first off, I don't think it was passed by two-thirds majorities today, but um, I can't remember. But my guess is is that this is going to set up a confrontation. Does Trump either now veto them and then run the risk of an override of a veto, of which I think is um, very very likely, because I think the the republic even the Republicans, I think, in Congress are very wary of Russia, or does he sign them and essentially the, the, uh, the sanctions and acknowledge the limits on what he's going to do? He's in a tough, tough position here, um, and most of it, I think, is self-inflicted at this point. But I think this is significant because even if there's not sufficient support among Republicans yet in terms of the continued investigation with you know the Trump administration and Russia, I think there's sufficient concern among Republicans as well as Democrats, that Russia is more enemy than than it is um, friend, and that the Russian government needs to be sanctioned for the interference that it brought about, or its interference in the 2016 election. Which the president continues to remain skeptical of. He remains skeptical of it, and it's interesting because as the stories keep emerging um, more and more, um, it's clear that Russia, that his campaign staff, um, his son, um, Jeff Sessions um, were were consulting with the Russians, and in fact, one of the stories that breaks today in the Washington Post um, is that you know Russian officials basically say that guess what? When Jeff Sessions was 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 present, they dis- uh, they discussed, right. and that was intercepted by U.S. Um, intelligence. Intelligence. It, exactly. It's it just it it uh, it's every day. There's something. It is every day. It's something at this point, and this also speaks to I think the fact that Trump has never gain control over the bureaucracy. In fact, um, it's probably so despised by, by, the, um, by most of the careerists in the intelligence and def- defense at all community that partly their way of reacting to them is what? Is, is they're going to leak everything. You know, the more you try to clamp down, um, the more stuff is going to leak out, and the more the official channels of investigation seem to be stymied, you're going to see more and more of this information come out. So, I don't, I'm not surprised it's all coming out, and it's all really painting a picture of, of, of what looks like um, if, if uh, collusive behavior, and if not collusive behavior between the Trump administration and the Russians, it's still nonetheless pointing to the fact that at almost every stage in the process, Trump, his son, um, Sessions, seem to be denying things, and then quickly afterwards, um, intelligence reports come out that basically... Um, um, challenge those assertions. And so it gets worse and worse and worse in terms of what looks like a very, very close relationship between the Trump administration and the Trump campaign. I'll say the Trump campaign, I should say, um, and Russian officials. 
Right. And, and again, the, the disclosures continue to just keep, keep coming. I mean, they, there also uh, have been reports in a number of newspapers that the Trump administration is actively working to try and, and discredit uh, uh, the special prosecutor, Mueller, and the people working for him. I mean, w- what is that about? Well, what it's about is the fact that it sort of looks like Mueller... Well, this week, Mueller announced that he was starting to look into the Trump finances, which includes um, Trump's tax records and a whole bunch of different things. And it may very well be at this point that uh, that Mueller is actually, you know, getting close to finding some important stuff. And even if even if he's not, we don't know. The fact that the Trump administration is reacting the way they are, trying to discredit Mueller all sort of looks like what? They do have something to hide. If, in fact, they were innocent and they had nothing to hide, they wouldn't be trying to do this massive discrediting right. process. They wouldn't be talking about, at this point, trying to issue pardons to a whole bunch of people. It, just, it, it looks like the behavior of, of somebody in an administration that really is guilty of something and is trying to cover up something. And at this point, they're now trying to attack uh, Mueller. And I can see a scenario where Trump might very well um, fire Mueller at this point. I mean, he hinted at it weeks ago, and, and that's going to be interesting to see what kind of an explosion that will trigger. Well, I mean, if, if that happens, I would think that, I mean, that would be, that. then the comparisons to Watergate would certainly <laughs> begin to come gushing through. It would. I mean, we already have the comparisons that are there right now, uh, but I think you're right, they'll be, they'll be even more significant. And I think for people who are sort of trying to do this in terms of, you know, weighing things out, right now, if, if these, the Russian interference um, in the U.S. elections is at least on par, if not, I would argue, more serious than what the initial Watergate matter was about, which was um, the president ordering a break-in of the Democratic, you know, headquarters in, in, in Washington. Yes, that's severe, but here, um, working with a, with a foreign government arguably maybe our enemy um, in terms of trying to influence the elections. Um, what looks some of the stories in the last few weeks, you know, that was it Donald Trump's, you know, junior um, meeting with Russian officials to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. I mean, all kinds of things going on here. This really, really looks at the very least, you know, as bad as Watergate, if not worse. And the fact that now they are having to amend, you know, a lot of their financial disclosure, statement of disclosures, um, um, reports, is looking like not just in terms of forgetting something, but it looks like act, active cover-up, which, which is illegal also. Right. Well, the cover-up can be worse than the initial problem. So many questions here. We do have to take a quick break for, for weather, but um, uh, I want to ask you about a bunch of those, uh, so many questions, including the, the president's tweets uh, talking about his power of pardoning, you know, that he could power just about anybody that it's, it's you know, it's how far that power goes. Also, the remarkable comments about Jeff Sessions to the New York Times. So much to talk about. More with David Schultz, who is back from China after this weather break on News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Your WCCO Time check, 834. The no-hail sale is going on now at McCarthy Auto World. Save up to 20% on select Buicks and GMCs. All right, folks. Uh, Professor David Schultz back from China. So much to talk about. So many questions for you. First of all, the, the, the president tweeting today 
that he has complete power to pardon. Is that correct? Yes and no. Um, And I would say that one interpretation of the law is to say that presidents generally have broad authority to be able to issue pardons, including pardons before people have actually been indicted for crimes. We know Gerald Ford did that back when he pardoned Richard Nixon back in, what, 74, 75, I can't remember the exact date. And so clearly presidents have broad ability to, to issue pardons, but uh, it's not necessarily the case that it's unreviewable and that it's unlimited. Again, this connects back to my comments with Dayton before, where Dayton was arguing with the light item veto that he could do whatever he wants with that veto. Uh, there is, I think, an emerging consensus out there that that the President of the United States, for example, um, could not use the line, or not, could, could not use his, his pardoning power um, to pardon himself um, for, for crimes that he, you know, that you know that he may have committed, or something like that. And B, more importantly, some are arguing, and I would take this position too, is that if the purpose of the pardon was in order to be able to obstruct um, a, a pending or, um, or an ongoing criminal investigation, then that pardon may not be valid. And think about it. You know, if 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 people could just issue pardons to be able to um, um, to give themselves a get out of jail free card from having done things wrong, um, that I think is inconsistent with the way we think about again American democracy. That people should not be able to absolve themselves of legal wrongdoing, including the president of the United States. And so I think that would be probably the more likely argument that would happen if if he were to issue these kind of pardons at least for himself, and again, if he did that in a way to try to, um, again, obstruct a a criminal investigation into his advisors or into his administration. Um, In terms of, um, uh, you know, what he's saying, and and again, this is all on Twitter, so it's a little difficult, but one of the things he also tweeted about today uh, was he was tweeting about, or this is at least in the last 24 hours, I believe, he tweeted out against an article that was in the Washington Post that reported that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had uh, an undisclosed, previously undisclosed uh, conversation with the Russian ambassador back during the campaign, and uh, he appeared in the Twitter uh, in the tweet to be defending Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who we absolutely threw under the bus mm-hmm. earlier in the week uh, in an interview with the New York Times saying he never would have appointed him if he had known that Attorney General Jeff Sessions uh, would recuse himself from the Russia investigation and that the president seems to blame everything on, on this recusal, which Sessions had to do. First of all, how how unusual is all of this? This is incredibly unusual at this point. And I have to think at some point that that Sessions may go the route of Spicer at this point. There's lots of interpretations. I mean, yeah, I, mean I, I was surprised that, that he didn't resign himself because, I mean, to have your boss know. you know, call you out and saying, I never would have appointed you. Yeah, and that's the point is I think at some point, I think Spicer himself, I think, he, again, there's various interpretations as to why he resigned. I think part of him was that he, he probably could no longer um, defend the Trump administration, you know, about, you know, trying to issue state press statements and being under, undercut at the same time. And I think the same thing is happening with Sessions at this point is that he's being continuously undercut by the, you know, by, by Donald Trump. Plus, he's done a lot of damage to himself in terms of not disclosing, you know, a variety of meetings or the contents of these meetings. And 
I just don't know how much longer he can survive at this point because it just seems, and I think this is across the board, you know, Trump has a one-way definition of loyalty. You have to be 100% loyal to him, but he has no loyalty to anybody else, and he will dump on his subordinates when he finds it convenient. And, and I have to think at some point Sessions is just going to say, I've had enough of this. Right. And and to a certain extent, for his own credibility, I think it would be difficult to proceed as well. And, and he's in some degree of trouble you know, himself because of, of these, these, you know, failure to, you know, fully disclose these situations. Um, but that's exactly the point I'm making here is that independent of, of him facing possibly, you know, a criminal indictment himself, uh, he does not have the full support of the President of the United States. That may force him in of himself to say that if I can't actually um, speak for the President of the United States, if I can't actually do my job as Attorney General, I need to step down. That's one. And then the fact that, too, he may be the object of a special prosecutor's investigation, to put the two of them together, this is a very difficult and almost untenable position for him to be in. Right. All right. Then we go back to the um – uh, which also happened when you were overseas, or the revelation happened overseas when you were overseas, uh, about this meeting with Donald Trump Jr., uh, Paul Manafort, then the campaign manager, Jared Kushner, uh, the attorney, uh, the emails going leading up to this meeting. Uh, this week, uh, Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort have agreed to testify before closed behind closed doors the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, let me ask you this: Why why would that happen behind closed doors? That testimony. Partly, it might happen for the fact that there may be some some um, sensitive information um, that ties into the Trump administration. They don't want disclosed. Two, this might have been the compromise that would just simply worked out in terms of the conditions under which they would voluntarily be willing to show up and testify. Um, there could be a couple of other reasons for it, uh, but I suspect. It's somewhere between those two different reasons here. I will also say that regardless of whether it's going to be behind closed doors or not, I'm suspecting it's going to get leaked out, that I can't imagine that this testimony is not in some way, shape, or form not going to make it into the New York Times, the Washington Post, or something over, you know, within the next week or something. But I think a lot of it is the fact that the testimony was probably um, brokered in terms of under conditions they would do it, and as, as a condition for them perhaps not pleading the fifth. And in terms of, of this meeting and going back to these emails, um, uh, you know, setting up this meeting and Donald Trump taking this meeting, uh, the president's attorney has said, you know, repeatedly, you know, this was not illegal. Uh, there's some, you know, some people are questioning that, and I think there seems to be a question about whether or not there was um, any indication uh, of whether there was anything achieved in return. What are your thoughts about that? Well, first off, even if not illegal, it, one could sort of question the ethics of doing this, the ethics of, of turning to a foreign government um, that says we potentially have information um, against your opponent that might be, might be useful. There is, I, I, I would, if, if the general principle is in law that we don't want foreign governments to interfere in U.S. elections, even if they haven't done anything illegal per se, the fact that one crosses the line is willing to let another government share information, I think already questions sort of the ethics, you know, of, of um, Donald Trump and Manaf- Donald Trump Jr. and Manafort. 
But there may very well be illegal behavior here in the sense of not only, again, might the two of them have lied about the content of the meetings under oath or under an affidavit, which, of course, you know, is you know, false swearing, which is a violation of the federal law, but depending on the exact nature of what type of cooperation was going on, um, what, what did the Russians' um, information, were they proceeding to offer, what were they expecting in return, this could, this could raise, again, some, some questions in terms of, of violations of federal law, anywhere from bribery to a host of other possibilities. All right, chatting with Professor David Schultz here. I do want to give you this uh, weather warning right now. Uh, the National Weather Service in Duluth has issued a severe thunderstorm warning for Price County in Wisconsin, Sawyer County in Wisconsin, until 9 p.m. Central Daylight Time. At 8.26 p.m. Central Daylight Time, a severe thunderstorm was located eight miles southeast of Winter, moving about uh, southeast at 25 miles per hour, 60-mile-per-hour uh, wind gusts, and half-dollar-size hail. For your protection, move to an interior room on the lowest floor of the building. Um, Professor David Schultz, back from a couple of weeks in China. You know, what, what all of this together, as I said, you know, it just every day there seems to be a different angle coming out. Um, and it, it doesn't look like it's getting any better for the president. It's not going to get any better. And if he doesn't fire Mueller, this is going to be an investigation that takes us way into 2018, um, impacting the 2018 congressional elections. If he does fire Mueller, it's of course going to have repercussions, you know, you know, straight through, you know, in terms of how this all plays out and raise a whole bunch of questions at that point regarding obstruction of justice and a variety of other things. And even if, even, even short term right now, I mean, the, the, I think what's happened is it has so distracted the Trump administration that he really can't move. That is Donald Trump and his administration can't move on health care, can't move on taxes. Um, they're not getting anywhere on their budget. For the most part, the Trump policy agenda is just stalled. It's going nowhere. And one of the things that has struck me now, what, with almost what, with six months and two days into his administration, is there doesn't seem to be any learning curve. Seems to be no learning from past mistakes in terms of how to correct things and how to be able to move on and move beyond them. And I don't see that on the horizon either. I see nothing that suggests that the Trump administration puts the Russian investigation behind them or has learned from its handling of the Russian investigation or, or from literally, literally anything and has grown it all in terms of becoming more skilled in, in, in legislative or communications relationships. And and again, you have to go back to the fact that, that, that the Republicans do control both houses of Congress. But I think this latest is issue with you know, the Russia sanctions, and, and, you know, on top of the health care bill collapsing, is something that indicates the divide there, and that the president doesn't have this control. He doesn't. The we have to coin a phrase here, which is, I guess, what um, intra-party or single-party gridlock, in a sense that. When it was Obama as a Democrat facing a Republican Congress, you fully expected the gridlock that has emerged in the United States with how polarized the parties are. But now what we're seeing is that potentially the Republicans can do whatever they want, and they were salivating at the prospect of really being able to move their agenda. It's going nowhere, not just because of Donald Trump, 
um, in terms of not being skilled, but the fact that the Republican Party is so divided, and the health care issue points to that, that they have several different wings of the Republican Party, neither of whom can compromise with the other. And now you throw in also the other complication where you have John McCain, who sort of looks like at this point he's out of the game for I don't know how long, if, if not permanently, and that makes it even harder for the Republicans to be able to govern in the Senate because that now puts them down to, what, a one-seat majority. Right. Obviously, uh, Senator McCain being diagnosed with a brain tumor in the last week, it is uh, a very aggressive form of the same kind that, that killed uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. And the prognosis isn't good. Governor or Senator McCain obviously vowing to come back, that he will be back in Washington, but a lot of concerns about that. Um, let's take a quick break, and I do want to ask you when you come back about health care because – it looks like the only option now is to try and work with Democrats. I mean, something's got to be done to fi- to fix the problems with Obamacare because there are problems. Uh, but it doesn't look like there's the will to completely take it away. So more with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. Esme Murphy along with uh, David Schultz, who is back from China. Um, in terms of the health care defeat, uh, was that just a weakened president or was that – Basically, Republicans questioning whether they could really vote against this thing, which so many people have embraced despite all of, all the problems. I think it's a little bit of both. Trump certainly didn't help in the fact that he didn't really have a proposal. He really couldn't push on things. He didn't seem to have the ability to threaten people to get him to do what he wanted. So that's one problem there. Basically, him lacking his administration, lacking the legislative skills to move bills through Congress. But the Republicans are hugely divided in Congress, but also nationwide. Keep in mind that there were governors like Republican Governor John Kasich in in, in Ohio, uh, as well as many other Republican governors, pressuring the Republicans in Congress saying, you can't repeal this um, or just repeal it and not replace it because of the devastating impact it would have upon our states, our state budgets, and many of the people um, who actually voted for you. So I think the Republicans face that that divide. They also face a huge ideological divide within their own party, ranging anywhere from sort of the Susan Collins moderates, you know, who who want to see um, it, the, the Affordable Care Act closer to being reformed versus people such as Rand Paul who want to see it completely, you know, um, eliminated. So this is a party that I think is hugely, hugely divided. Um, the House of Representatives, you know, as we know, what is it, 50 or 60 times they voted to repeal it, never had an alternative to it. And I think the fact that they never had alternatives to it um, is now coming out. And I think the other thing that's occurred now is that the Trump administration and the Republicans in Congress have managed to achieve something that Obama and the Democrats never could, which is now a majority of the American public supports the Affordable Care Act. And I think that also complicates the picture. But don't they, they – I mean something really does need to be done here because it, it, it's not there – are, there are still a lot of problems, most notably premiums when it comes to that, that self-employed group of people yeah. uh, who are making too much money to qualify for any kinds of breaks. I think that's one major problem. I think the other major problem, and I talked about this in China last week, is right from the beginning, I think one of the fatal defects of of the Affordable Care Act was that it never did enough in terms of addressing affordability and prices because 
part of what the reform we needed to do was that overall we spend about 18% of our gross domestic product, you know, on healthcare. We are by far the most expensive healthcare system in the world with not universal coverage. The Affordable Care Act didn't do much to, to change that cost curve. And then as you pointed out, for the individuals at a certain income level, they face enormous premium rises. And so the Act needs to have some amendment, some work done on it, and it should have been done several years ago. Every major piece of legislation has had to be amended or cleaned up at some point. Now the strategy shifts to will the Trump administration be willing to work and, and Republican leadership be willing to work with Democrats to, to, to make changes to the act. This is going to be a hard thing from the swallow because they're going to basically have to concede and say the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. We're now tinkering with it. We're now um, amending it. I just don't know if, if there is that political will to, uh, to do something like that. But you're absolutely correct. It does need to be amended. It does need to be corrected. And, and obviously so many of the original premises, so first of all, the name is, is Governor Mark Dayton, infamously said it's no longer affordable, but also that, that you get to keep your own health care provider. All of those things didn't turn out to be true. But the things that it did give, I read an interesting uh, point somewhere that one, once you give somebody – uh, a benefit uh, or an entitlement, it's very difficult to take it away. It is. It's not it's, impossible. Right, and this is what the Republicans were always con- concerned about, is that if this act went into effect, um, the longer it was in effect, it would be harder to repeal it. And I think it's exactly what's happening now, because we've now insured what, I think, how many, you know, like 20 million additional people as a result of this act, you know, in the, in the few years it's been in place. All the estimates are that any kind of Senate amending or repealing or the House amending or repealing is going to take away health insurance from anywhere ranging from 20 to 30 million people. Uh, I think we've reached a point where it's not possible to repeal it, plus the you know, this, this being basically one-fifth of the U.S. economy, health care, maybe one-sixth, one um, repealing it, you can't do it because of all the changes that have already occurred in the U.S. economy. The reality is, is that this act is more or less here to stay, and the best policy approach at this point now is figuring out ways of correcting it to make it work properly. All right. Well, uh, certainly a, a lot at stake here. But um, and, and again, so you know, going back to the thing about China, the question about China that I asked you at the beginning. So you were getting news about sort of the Trump administration, all those things uh, on the official Chinese news channels. Uh, do, do they have access in China to social media? No, that's the part that they don't. Facebook is blocked. Twitter is blocked over there. Um, Skype is blocked. <coughs> So that there's significant blocking of the social media. So they're not able to, the um, regular citizens over there, people over there are not able to access the social media. Wow. Okay. And because that's, I mean, that's obviously the way a lot of people get their news, mm-hmm. you know, here, here in, um, uh, in, in the U.S. Well, listen, yes. um, David Schultz, it's great to have you back. Thank you so much. We no missed you. Uh, and we always appreciate your, your time here. But uh, again, so much happening. Um, so quickly, and uh, again, it's, it's, you, you feel like you're sort of living on the precipice here with all these developments, especially when it comes to this current administration. Uh, it's, it's, it's great news, bad policy, but great news. All right. Well, thank you so much, and I'm sure you, you're probably a little worn out from your trip yes. and, and the flight, but thank you so much for, for coming on tonight. We appreciate it. Anytime. Good night. All right. The one and only David Schulson, please check out his blog, Schulz's Take. Uh, interesting um, hear his perspectives on China as well. Uh, well, listen, folks, I do want to give a big shout-out to uh, the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. really want to thank her for 
all the work she does. She will be producing the new show with Jordana and my friend Paul Douglas. Uh, how great is that going to be uh, for your afternoon drive here? Uh, if you've missed that, they will be the new afternoon drive that's going to be rolled out in the next couple of weeks here at News Radio 830 WCC. I want to give a shout out too to our two studio coordinators, Kevin Reed, who's at the controls right now, and of course, Jonathan Lowe. Thank you so much. You guys are really Great to work with, so I want to thank you for that. And please tune into WCCO TV Sunday morning at 6 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. Actually, I'm going to be joined by Kylie uh, Burst tomorrow. And also Senator Amy Klobuchar will be a guest, as will the Republican chair of the GOP party, Jennifer Carnahan. Keep it here, News Radio 830. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.